0: Paleo Runner Podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. You can also follow me on facebook.com runpaleo or on Twitter at runpaleo. Email feedback to aaron at paleorunner.org. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about a product I've been using called 3 Fuel. 3 Fuel is a sports drink that gives you sustained energy throughout your workout. It gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates. To get 10% off, use the coupon code 3 f Olson. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3FUEL at the top of the page. If you're listening on the podcast app for iPhone or iPad, click the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is Steve Magnus. His latest book is called The Science of Running. He blogs at scienceofrunning.com. Steve, it's great to have you on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Steve, so give our listeners a little bit of a background of how you actually got interested in running in the first place.
1: Yeah, sure. When I was growing up, I was more of a soccer player and and kind of just did well at the fitness tests that we did. And then finally, uh, once I entered high school, I decided to try out for the cross-country team. And my plan was to kind of use that as fitness for soccer. But that first cross-country season, I did so well and made the varsity and such that I kind of was forced to do do cross country uh, and and give up the soccer dream. So from there, it was just uh, my love for running kind of grew and grew. And I, you know, just became a competitive runner on the high school and then college level.
0: Gotcha. And you were, you were actually quite a good runner in high school. You actually set some records in the 1600 meters. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So I uh, have the Texas state record in the uh, 1600 and the mile and uh ran a 401 mile as a high schooler
0: Mm -hmm. wow that that's smoking so what happened as you started to move into college and then after college did you continue your running
1: i did you know i had a little bit of a rough transition to college i i was one of those kids who probably needed someone to hold me back uh because i was just going to do everything i could to get better so I went into college and and was putting in probably 110 120 mile weeks uh, my freshman year and just kind of trained myself to death and and got that over overtraining that we've all you know kind of experienced at some point. Um, but th- throughout the rest of college, I qualified for NCAA's and in cross country um, and then made regionals and stuff in track, but didn't have a stellar college career. And then after after college, I. Ran for a couple of years competitively, more on the roads um, and stuff. While I was in grad school.
0: Mm-hmm. And Steve, you know, one of your latest blog posts is about um, sometimes we hit some of those plateaus in running. Were you were you able to uh, ever break the four minute mile? That you, know, you came pretty close in high school.
1: <laughs> I was not, unfortunately. That's what everyone asked me. But uh, no, I I kind of rammed myself up against that wall uh, too many times to count. Um, and never had that kind of big breakthrough that that I wanted. Um, so unfortunately, not. Mm-hmm.
0: So let, let's talk a little bit about that recent blog post because I, I think it kind of shows um, your analysis of the science and of running. And you go into how a lot of times we'll have a great run and we'll think, "Wow, this, you know, that didn't even hurt very much. I, this is a new stepping stone for me, and I, I'm, the next time I'm going to really break through even more." And then inevitably we we don't hit that same high again tell me a little bit about the science of that and and, um what you wrote in that latest blog post
1: definitely definitely yeah it's an interesting phenomenon so when we when we race what they've uh found through research is that we essentially have this set point of how hard the race is actually going to be so how hard we think it's going to feel going into it so we have these preconceived expectations and what happens during a breakthrough a lot of times is we get done with the race and it feels a whole lot easier than we expected because it was a, a breakthrough. So you've got all that adrenaline and um, hormones kind of shooting through you and making it feel easier than than you expect it to be. So what happens is that that breakthrough and that feeling that it was much easier than we expected, that kind of changes our expectations for the next race. So... We go into the next races, and all of a sudden we're expecting, like, oh, that that last race was really easy. Um, So this one, I should be able to run faster. And what happens is, as you said, we go backwards a lot of times. Um, And as I said, that happens because it it essentially messes with with your expectations in your set point of how hard the race should feel. Mm
0: -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Steve, you know, I think people are kind of getting the idea of your writing is that you, you write in an interesting way and you tackle some of the issues that a lot of other running books don't. Um, but, you know, with so many running books out there, who is this running book for? I mean, we've all heard over and over again, you know, this sort of same old approach. You've got the lactate threshold, you've got your VO2 max type training, and then you've got your sprint type training. How, how Why do we need another book? Um, to talk about the science of running and how to train,
1: you know, I think I offer a little bit of a different perspective uh, My goal in this in this book wasn 't to kind of give the same old same old that that i 've read you know uh, my goal was to offer a new kind of take on things, so I try and be critical of both the science side of of the sport and then also the sport or the coaching side of the sport, so I see my book as kind of meaning that unique. Almost, you know, divide where I'm not a pure exercise physiologist and I'm not a pure coach, and I try and try and almost answer the question of, all right, we have these two sides. Um, how do we re, how do we bring them together and find the best of both worlds?
0: Mm-hmm. And what uh, give me an example of how you would bring those two sides together? I mean, is the research it out that's out there? Is there a big divide between that and coaching?
1: Uh, there is to a degree. You know, you have coaches who are almost um, completely in love with the research, and then you have coaches who almost hate science. So anything, if you mention lactate threshold, they'll just be like, ah, that's too complicated. Uh, we don't need that. Mm-hmm. So as an example, I guess, you know, where where I bring the research in is a lot of the kind of recovery modalities that can be used. So looking at recovery instead of just, seeing it as okay hop in the ice bath or go drink you know drink your carb drink i look at it as almost like well the research is telling us that recovery can either be a it can be a help in terms of recovering and getting you back on the field faster or it can be a hindrance in terms of well if you take an ice bath it might you know dampen down the training effect so i look at look at it in terms of periodizing the recovery just as you would periodize um your training
0: hmm. And I I think from the reading I've done on your blog over the years, I think you have a different take on fatigue than a lot of people um, have out there. And we've had Tim Noakes on the show. Is is your take on training for fatigue similar to his central governor theory, where a lot of what's going on in, in running is really in the brain?
1: Definitely, definitely. I think that's one of the biggest breakthroughs in the past you know, decade has been Noak's work on the central governor and then others who have contributed as well. And and when you really look at it, it's it's a subtle change, but I think it has significant implications. And the way basically to sum it up is that um, your brain regulates, you know, performance and, and fatigue. So it's not just your muscles screaming out with lactic or you know, muscle byproducts that get built up. Instead, it's that is the signal to your brain to tell you, okay, you know, we're getting these things bu- built up. What do we do about it? And that the brain is kind of the ultimate controller.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So give me an example of how would that actually change our training because I know I, I've talked to Tim about this and he he says, you know, the training – It really hasn't, at least in him's mind, hasn't changed a lot. How about for you? Has the central governor approach changed the way that you train?
1: You know, it changes the subtleties, I think. I'll give you a quick example. But um, if we look at championship races, for example – a lot of those are, you, know, not your straight time trial type races where it's just a you know, steady pace and you hang on for dear life. Championship races are more tactical, where you have surges, and if you put yourself in the position of someone in that race, you, know, if you're sitting there and someone surges or, or kicks, you don't know how long they're going to be able to s- sustain that pace. You just have to blindly guess. So, you know, one of the things that you can do in training based on, you know, the fact that the mind, the brain, the conscious and subconscious control plays such a big difference is you can almost simulate that in practice by kind of ignoring splits or doing re- repeats with, uh, without knowing how far you're going to go and, and all that kind of good manipulation.
0: Mm, Hmm. That's that's very interesting. You know, this is going to seem like a really naive question, but something I've thought about is if our main focus is really training the brain to accept more fatigue, why is it that intervals are such an important part of training? Because how how do we know that we're not just training the body to take frequent breaks if we're doing intervals a lot of times?
1: You, You know, that's a good question. I think that happens to some people. I think some people get really good at working out. With a break in between um, and those are the people who you see can can kind of nail those practice sessions but it doesn't translate in the race um, so I think that's a good point and I think that that is another subtle change in in uh, training that might occur based on this paradigm and if you're one of those persons who has that you might need to look at doing either longer intervals or um, almost time trial type efforts to to kind of compensate that I think intervals are a good good way to get the desired effect but they don't always hold all the answers
0: Mm -hmm. um you know i haven't had a chance to go through the whole book yet but uh from reading your blog you've um you've taken on this idea of training just energy systems what i think of is kind of the jack daniels approach and where you just have these three different energy systems and you're going to train each one and if you get the mix right then you'll have a good race um I've seen you take that on in your in your blog and and that it's really rather than just a discrete energy systems there's more variability in, in that and can can you explain that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, the way I look at it is if you look at the energy system model it's it's not like you just switch on one and say oh i'm going to use all aerobic energy at this point or i'm going to use all anaerobic energy it's all, it's more of a blend between everything so i think i think the distinction of okay i'm going to do some anaerobic work this week is, is more of a you know man made you know distinction that doesn't hold up so i i like to flip it on its head and look at training from a simpler you know, we're applying a stress and then we uh, adapt to that stress. And whatever stress we uh, apply determines how we adapt to it. So if we do, you know, your traditional threshold or tempo run, say five miles at a good, steady, solid pace, what are we doing? Well, we're getting good at adapting, you know, in that direction. Well, if we need to do something more specific like mile reps or mile pace, then we're doing, you know, 400s at mile rep or mile pace or six unders at mile pace or what have you it's not that we're hitting some certain energy system we're just pushing the stress in that direction if that makes sense mm-hmm.
0: yeah you you emphasize in the introduction to your book that there's a lot that we still don't know about the human body that it's a very complex system and that we tend to just focus on the things that we know so, so things like lactate threshold um what did you What did you have in mind when you wrote that? Uh, what sorts of things do you think mi- we might not have discovered yet?
1: Well, I, I think there's a a whole lot of things. First, I think the the brain is a whole new, wide open window um, that we don't know. You know, if you look at um, physiology and the progression of the sci- exercise science it it mostly develops based on what we could measure so if you trace it all the way back why did vo2 max get important because it's the one thing we could measure when this started <laughs> in the 1920s and 1930s you know when we when we could easily measure lactate in the 80s and 90s well all the all of a sudden lactate threshold became important and now as we're getting more kind of you know brain imaging and and all that good stuff well the brain's getting important so it 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 almost depends on what next gadget is developed and um, can tell us what, what we can measure a little bit.
0: Okay, okay. So are those things, we're talking a lot about the brain here and how it regulates fatigue, but are those things like lactate threshold and VO2 max, are those still important or is it just all brain now?
1: I mean, I think it's still important, but I think it's, it's kind of settled down in it, into its right place. You know, I think in the past we've t- kind of taken a reductionist view of things where it's like, okay, the VO2 max is the, you know, the big thing or the lactate threshold is. And what we're really learning is that, you know, it's an integrated system. So all these things matter and your brain kind of keeps it all under control um, or is almost the master regulator of it. It doesn't mean that it's not important. It just means that it's not the be all and all that we thought it was.
0: Okay. Uh, Steve, I want to talk to you a little bit about mileage. Um, how important is mileage? I know uh, another another guy, Matt Fitzgerald, who writes about the mind body connection, says that you know uh, mileage is one of the most important factors of uh, distance running what 's your take on that
1: it's a good question. I think that's been a debate in uh distance running training for for decades, but my view on it is is that you should do the the maximum amount of mileage that you can handle for your event hmm. so what that means is that you know, you're you going to have some 5K runners who might run 50 miles a week because that's what they can handle. Um, on the other end, you're going to have some that can run 110 or 120 miles a week because that's what they can handle. So you're looking to get that balance of doing enough so that you can satisfy the aerobic demands of your event um, but not pushing it so far like I did in high school where you're almost overtraining or injury-prone or, or what have you.
0: Mm. Do you think that there's ever a place for- uh training a little bit less than than you can actually um do say to prevent injuries i mean if say if you're you get injured just barely injured at fifty to sixty, should you maybe only do forty
1: Yeah no, I think it you know the old saying goes is you're kind of useless if you're injured, so um it's much better to be you know. 5% o- under trained than 1% over trained. Mm-hmm. So I would definitely err on the side of caution um, when building up.
0: Okay. And um, how important is strength training in uh, distance running? And I know there's, uh, there's. I had a, a guy on the show last week who's big into CrossFit. Uh, he he has a program called CrossFit Endurance, and he th- says that strength training, especially for things like ultra marathon events, can be huge because it can help prevent muscle breakdown. What's your take on that?
1: You know, strength training is definitely important. A, it lays the foundation for what we do, and if you do it right, it can be huge on on uh, preventative um, and preventative injuries. But the other thing is that I think we have to keep in mind that we are actually running. So running is, you know, the most important thing and the strength work that you do shouldn't take away from that. I see strength work as as kind of your, you know, extra 2%, your extra 5% boost you're looking for. So you're looking at hitting the running and then supplementing it with strength training. And I think the danger sometimes is, is people go gung-ho, especially in CrossFit, on thinking that, that the strength training is, is the be-all, end-all, when if you're training for a running race, like running should be the most important. It doesn't mean that you don't strength train. It just means that you put it in, in its right place.
0: Mm Hmm. You know, that's something that I've been skeptical over the years about is the strength training. And um, I know even guys like Ryan Hall. I follow his blog, and he said he used to do like an hour in the gym a day, and he really didn't see any benefits uh, when he actually, or or he didn't see any losses when he decreased his strength training to like five minutes a day. And what I'm wondering is, with the athletes you've worked with, have you seen a lot of benefits from actually getting in the gym. I know some studies come out where they'll show um, master's runners increase like something like 2% in a 5K time trial. But is that something that you actually see at a high level?
1: Yeah, you know, it's one of the big debates. And what I'd say is a little goes a long way. So with even my elite athletes, you know, they might do twice a week maybe three times a week of some sort of strength training that lasts maybe 30 45 minutes so it's enough but it's not like they're in the in the weight room an hour every day mm-hmm. right and and I think that's where you have to translate those studies over to the real world is that you want to do enough so that you get you know your good bang for your buck but you don't want to be in the gym so much that all of a sudden now you're tired on all your runs and you're tired on all your workouts and and those workouts and runs kinda go down while your strength training takes importance so I think it's all about balance and and a little bit of it goes a long way
0: mm-hmm. and is the main benefit of strength training uh, the muscle recruitment w- what is your take on what we're actually benefiting from
1: yeah it does It does a couple different things first it it can increase muscle recruitment so you can train your body to recruit more muscle fibers, which then you can hopefully use when you're out running. The other thing it does is if you add in like plyometrics and things like that, you're looking at at increasing your ability to use um elastic energy efficiently. And then the last thing you can do is is increase power a little bit, which helps with efficiency too.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. How about the idea of periodization? Um, is it important to have different seasons throughout the years? I mean say even a lot of uh, people listening to this are um, recreational runners, and they don 't have um distinct seasons necessarily um, for people like us it, Is it important to have uh, periodization throughout the year?
1: I think it is you know I think it's good to change. Um, your body adapts when you change, so if you keep repeating the same type of workout same everything then you kind of get stale so periodization is important um regardless of your level i think where it changes is it doesn't need to be some huge you know modulation or some huge change from you know month to month and you can look at it as almost more blending different workouts instead of going all right i'm going to do all my legs this week and then all all intervals the next week and that that sort of thing Mm-hmm.
0: How about diet? How important do you think diet is? a lot of people uh, listening to this are interested in the paleo diet and what's what's been your experience working with diet with your athletes
1: yeah I, I think it I think diet matters obviously it's the fuel you're putting into the system so um it, it matters in terms of performance especially when you're looking at the longer distances like the marathon um but also in terms of recovering from day to day training um so I think it's a a pretty vital thing what diet works exactly i think is a thing that science hasn't quite figured out um i know Noakes is is huge on the paleo diet now too Mm -hmm. um so it it seems like that fluctuates a a bit but i i really encourage athletes to experiment a little bit and see what works for them Mm
0: -hmm. and have you had any have you reviewed any of the literature about um possibly low-carbohydrate, higher-fat diets, working for some of those ultra-distance events. Um, a few weeks ago, we had Zach Bitter on the show, and he set an American record for the 100 miles following a really low-carb diet. Do you think that there's any benefit to that, or is what have you done just as well on a high-carb diet?
1: You know, it's impossible to say, but I think there's some, some good training adaptations that can actually occur on a on going low carb for a little bit. Um, I know there's recently there's been some research and then some athletes have done it where they've almost gone on carb restricted to kind of force your body to get used to dealing with low glycogen and then bringing back in carbs um, to kind of super compensate a little bit. So I think there's some good research there. I think for the ultra events, it's such an unexplored area um, because it's relatively new uh, to competitive, you know, fields. Mm -hmm. And then also it's relatively new to research, too. So there hadn't been a lot of studies done on it yet.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So what was it like writing this book? Um, How much research did you have to put into it? And how long did it take you?
1: Um, it, It was a several year process. So it started when I was in graduate school and I was doing a lot of research for my Master's thesis, and I kept coming around, uh, along really cool studies that I was like, "Man, I wish you know more people knew about this, and I wish more people, you know, could figure this out." So it started then, and that was kind of when I, you know, got most of my research in, and then sat on the back burner for probably two years, and then after that, I've been working on it for the past year and a half, and it took ungodly amounts of research and time. More research studies I've looked at than I I care to talk about, um, but it it was well worth it. I think I think I got a good assimilation of of almost all the latest stuff out there.
0: Okay, cool. So, what are some of the top things that you could tell some some of the runners or triathletes listening to this as far as how to improve their running? Is there are there any specific tips that you could share with us?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, my response is to focus on on the things that aren't normally covered so we talked about diet a little bit we talked about strength training some um for distance runners and even triathletes a lot i feel like sprint and power training is neglected a little bit so even doing something simple as adding in you know 10 second long sprints um or 10 second long uphill sprints uh once a week can do amazing things for both muscle recruitment and power so it's A lot of times it's simple uh, changes like that and adding different kind of new training stimuluses to your arsenal that you haven't done before that kind of bring those breakthroughs.
0: Mm. So if we were to implement those sprints, would that be something we could do on an easy day or would we devote a whole sort of workout to that?
1: Yeah. You know, what I say is when you're first getting used to it, I would do it as a whole workout because you're most likely going to be sore because – your body hasn't gone through that maximal, you know, sprint uh, muscle recruitment before. But once you adapt to it after, you know, two or three weeks, then you can use it on your easy days. You know, with all the professional athletes I coach, it's, it's almost entirely on their easy days. And a lot of times what I've found is that if you do it, you know, the day before a hard workout, sometimes once you're adapted, it can almost prime the body and prime the system to get ready for the next day.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm well steve it's been great talking to do to you today where do you recommend people go to find out more about you
1: thanks aaron uh it's been good talking you know i i would say my blog science is the best place to stay up to date on what i'm doing or check out my book which you can get over on a- amazon
0: all right steve well thanks so much for talking with us today
1: yeah no problem
0: If you like podcasts, you're also going to like audible.com. There's over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Kindle, Android, or MP3 player. Go to paleorunner.org and click Audible at the top of the page to get your free audiobook download. If you're listening to this on the podcast app for iPhone or iPad, click the link displayed on the app right now.